Hello, everyone, and welcome back to People, Parasites, and Plagues, a podcast aimed at delivering information about the fascinating pathogens among us from the scientists who study them. I am Liliana Salvador. And I am David Peterson, your host for today's episode. According to the CDC, salmonella bacteria cause over a million infections each year and over 400 deaths in the U.S. alone. While most of the outbreaks are caused by contaminated food, some are linked to other sources such as wild or domestic birds, raccoons, or even small turtles. But just how is an outbreak of salmonella traced to its source? Our guest today can help us understand this process of molecular detective work. Dr. Nikki Sheriat is an assistant professor in the Department of Population Health at UGA's College of Veterinary Medicine. Her areas of research include molecular epidemiology of bacterial foodborne pathogens using metagenomics with a particular focus on salmonella population dynamics in food animals and in the environment. So Nikki, it's so glad to, to have you here. I'm, I'm excited about this because I think your research is so cool. Your research focuses on salmonella, but can you tell us a bit about what salmonella is and where does it live in the environment or animals and exactly how is it transmitted? Sure, sure. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Liliana and David, for having me uh, on this podcast. It's really an honor to be here. Uh, so salmonella is an enteric bacteria, so it typically lives in the guts of animals. Um, it's most frequently associated with food animals like cattle and poultry um, and transmitted in that, in that manner. Um, but we also see it associated with uh, wildlife, um, and also we can we know that it can persist in the environment. Um, and so, any interactions with uh, contaminated meat, with uh, backyard poultry, is a, is you know, currently a, a big source of salmonellosis cases in the U.S. Uh, and then um, its presence in the environment, so fresh water, for example, um, recreational activities, drinking uh, unclean water can also uh, contribute uh, to salmonella. And using that water to irrigate fresh produce is um, also a key way that salmonella can be transmitted into our food. Nikki, when we read about salmonella outbreaks and outbreak investigations, uh, we hear the term serotype many times. Could you tell us what a serotype is and why is determining the serotype important in these outbreak investigations? Sure, sure thing. That's, that's a great question. In fact, as soon as I see a CDC um, alert for a, uh, an outbreak or an FDA alert for a recall, I'm like, okay, which serotype is it? Because sometimes that tells us a little bit about salmonella. Um, so salmonella is you know, remarkably diverse. Um, and serotype is just uh, one way of classifying uh, salmonella into different groups. And that classification is based on the proteins that are on the self-surface of salmonella. Um, and the importance of that is that um, certain serotypes can live in different animals or they can persist in different environments. And so it gives us an idea of the, the physiology and the nature um, of that particular type of salmonella. Uh, and some serotypes can cause greater illness in humans. Um, and similarly, um, some serotypes can cause severe illness in animals as well. And so understanding the serotype um, is sort of one type of classification of salmonella and helps us understand uh, the given outbreak or the scenario that's occurring. So uh, more or less, how many serotypes exist? Uh, there's over mm -hmm. 2,600 different salmonella serotypes. Oh, actually. wow. <laughs> oh, wow. That is a lot. Uh, 
And uh, many of them are named actually, um, they're called geostereotypes. They're named after uh, geographic locations uh, where some of, where they were, the, an outbreak of that particular uh, serotype first occurred, which is quite interesting. That is really interesting. So Nikki, um, 2,600 serotypes, I had no idea. Um, can you? It keeps us busy. I guess. <laughs> Good. <laughs> can these be? broadly grouped into clusters and are those geographic or are they clustered by host species or or what is it because that 2600 is a lot to keep track of absolutely um and and it's really only a subset of those you know 2600 that we see routinely that are responsible for for foodborne illness so um, the majority of outbreaks that occur in the U.S., for example, are caused by, you know, between 10 and 20 different serotypes. Many of them, you know, I'm a salmonella specialist. So I don't expect to come into contact with many of those uh, 2,600 serotypes in the, uh, the course of my career. Uh, so the classification into serotypes is based on two proteins that are on the cell surface of salmonella. Um, one of those is, um, is re referred to as the O antigen. Um, and we use that information to serogroup salmonella. Um, and so within that serogroup, there can be scores of different serotypes, but that's sort of one way of grouping them. Nikki, before we get into the tools you use to char characterize salmonella isolates, could you tell us a little bit about what, the, what kind of tools have been historically used so far? Sure, absolutely. Uh, so, you know, salmonella is a foodborne pathogen. And so uh, one of the reasons that it's so important to classify it is to be able to trace it back to its source so that you can prevent the, the outbreak from continuing, right, to, to, to limit the salmonella spread. Um, and so since the early days, it's been really important to be able to link the salmonella that you find in your, you know, contaminated food product with the salmonella that's caused illness in an individual, so serotyping is one method of characterization, but that's really sort of a, a 40,000 foot uh, bird's eye view of what's going on with salmonella. Phage typing was um, for the longest time a approach that was used for um, looking at salmonella. So phage are viruses that infect bacteria um, and there's a lot of specificity to that. So um, some phage can infect some strains of salmonella, but not others. And so looking to see which phage can infect and kill a certain salmonella was actually a way of distinguishing between different strains of salmonella. Uh, we then moved into different sort of molecular approaches. So one molecular approach was to use pulse field gel electrophoresis following a restriction digest. And so it was looking at the DNA fingerprint um, between different strains. And for the longest time, that was really the gold standard for salmonella analyses. Um, there've been other molecular um, tools that have been used, um, but in most recent years, um, whole genome sequencing has um, really become uh, taken off in terms of being the way that we now analyze salmonella when we're trying to do outbreak analyses. So this was whole genome sequencing was something that was introduced um, and really um, pioneered by the US Food and Drug Administration, the um, Center for Food Safety and Applied Nutrition really set up a wonderful platform for whole genome sequencing of salmonella. And that's since been uh, taken on by other federal agencies, so the CDC and the uh, USDA Food Safety Inspection Service. And that, instead of having the sort of uh, uh, 40,000 foot bird's eye view, now you can actually interrogate every single position 
of uh, DNA. Um, what's the DNA information at every single position in that genome? And so you can unequivocally match up uh, an outbreak strain with um, the potential source. So as someone who started his research career sequencing genes one at a time, I'm still amazed when we're talking genomes. It's just a whole other scale. But um, You and me both. My, uh, I, uh, my PhD mentor used to make us run our own sequencing gels when I was in grad school. <laughs> That's that good. That's good. It builds character. <laughs> it does. It does. <laughs> so um, how do the tools developed by you differ from the classical methods? I assume you're using whole genome data, but how do you use that? So actually we don't use whole genome data. Ah. Um, so the, the, the questions that I'm asking are, are very different. So I'm not looking to track and trace salmonella. Um, I'm looking to see what the salmonella populations are um, in different animals and different environments. And what I mean by that is that, you know, if we take the gut of a chicken or the, the gut of a cow, we can see multiple serotypes that are present at any one time. And so I'm interested to see what those dynamics of those different serotypes are. So under what conditions does one serotype proliferate or colonize an animal better than another? And what are the implications, the food safety implications of that downstream? And so these uh, traditional methods of, you know, whether it's phage typing, PFGE, whole genome sequencing, they rely on isolation of a single bacterial colony from a, um, an agar plate of salmonella. Um, and so you've already sort of selected for a subset of what's going on in that animal gut. What we do in our lab is to look at um, multiple different colonies, that mixed population of salmonella to see what's present. That is really fascinating. Could you give us just a, um, a little bit more detail about how do you sample from those different colonies? How do you know how many colonies you have, for example? Sure, 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 sure. Um, so uh, I guess picking colonies, I was, I was simplifying it when I said that. So typically when salmonella is present, it's actually um, present at a pretty low level um, and can be outcompeted by other bacteria that are present. And so when we grow salmonella and we try and isolate it, we actually grow it in a selective enrichment broth. And so this enrichment broth will inhibit the growth of other microorganisms while allowing salmonella to grow. Then you take that enrichment broth and you'll streak that onto your Petri dish and see what salmonella grow. We actually go back to that mixed culture of that selective broth um, and we analyze all of the salmonella that are present in there. So we're not actually picking you know, hundreds of colonies off of a plate. And that seems to be a really efficient way for us to do this. So as we mentioned at the uh, start of this episode, there's a lot of different sources for salmonella contamination in, in food, but one of them is poultry, and it seems to be one of the more important ones. Why is that so difficult to control in poultry? Yeah, that's a, a million dollar question. <laughs> and I think one of the biggest problems um, that we face in the poultry industry, and uh, the phrase that uh, myself and my, my clinical colleagues use very often is, um, is whack-a-mole, you know, the, the old game. Um, 
And it's really a case of once you get rid of one salmonella, um, salmonella is really crafty, right? And so you remove one serotype and another one can come in and sort of fill that, that vacuum, if you like. And so we, we've seen that over the last several decades, we see that we remove one serotype and then another serotype can come in and sort of take that place. And sometimes the, the salmonella that's coming in is a salmonella that is a, has a larger food safety risk. Um, and so what we're trying to do in my lab is to use this population analysis to see, okay, what are all of the different serotypes that are present at any given moment? Um, and can we see underlying serotypes that look over time like they're increasing so that we can act proactively or we can allow our poultry partners to act proactively to develop mitigations against those serotypes versus okay, there's been an outbreak. Now we need to throw all of our resources and, and all of our efforts to control this one serotype. So can we, can we act ahead of time? That, that's really our plan. But it's, uh, one of the problems is, is just that salmonella is so diverse and you remove one and another one pops up. So Nikki, can you walk us through how an outbreak is investigated? Um, does it start with the state health department and later the CDC? Do they work together from the start or how does this actually work when when an outbreak happens in the U.S.? Sure. Uh, so salmonella is actually a reportable uh, illness. And so if uh, well, first of all, I should say that um, a large number of salmonella cases um, go unreported. Um, it's it's typically self-limiting. So uh, people who get sick off, you know, within a week or so, they're feeling okay and the symptoms aren't so bad. And so that's actually a problem, right, for for tracking and tracing is if not everybody is reporting their illness. Um, but in those cases, you know, if you, if you go to your physician and, and they diagnose you as having a salmonella infection, that's reported to the state health department and the state health department uploads that information, which ultimately makes its way to the CDC. Um, and then there are people monitoring to see, are we seeing the same types of salmonella that are coming up? Does it look like we're forming a, an outbreak? That, that's typically how it works. And then you've got the epidemiologists who are really sort of the boots on the ground who then uh, take it from there to try and do uh, interviews with people who've been sick to try and identify a common food product or identify a common restaurant that people have eaten at. And, you know, chicken's actually a tricky one, right? Because 70% of people in the United States eat chicken at least once a week. And so actually tracking outbreaks in chicken is not that easy. So in addition to, to foodborne salmonella, there's, of course, salmonella in the environment. And I know that uh, some of your research is concerned with that because in a recent study, you were looking at salmonella serotypes in the Susquehanna River, which I note here is the longest river on the East Coast of the U.S. And so for that study, what was your motivating research question? Well, I just wanted to get out and be in the river. <laughs> no, no um, in all seriousness, um, the presence of foodborne pathogens in freshwater sources across the U.S. is uh, is an important is an important field to understand with respect to food safety, especially when water is used for irrigation of fresh produce. And fresh produce outbreaks are particularly important, right? Because for much of our fresh produce, we don't um, uh, we don't cook our fresh produce, right? So, uh, so yes, uh, understanding salmonella in the environment, especially in fresh water, is is important. 
so when fresh water is used for irrigation of, of fresh produce of vegetables, um, that can be a source of salmonella contamination. So we've seen several outbreaks in recent years of salmonella and also E. coli associated with fresh produce. And the problem with fresh produce is that you typically eat le- uh, you typically eat your food raw. Um, not many people cook lettuce, right? Um, whereas with your uh, with your poultry and your meat products, you typically cook them. And so, if there is any salmonella contamination, you're able to, you know, remove it by cooking. With with fresh vegetables, that's not the case. And so, understanding how salmonella gets from animals into the environment, so whether it's the soil, whether it's fresh water sources, how long it persists in those water sources, um, it's a very important food safety question. And building on that, Nikki, do you, do we already know the answer to those questions? Do we know how salmonella gets into surface water, and once it's there, how long does it last? Um, we we have an idea. So many of the studies that have been done have been associated with with prevalence of salmonella in water, um, and understanding some of the weather parameters that are associated with, with the prevalence of salmonella in water. But we don't necessarily know how far it travels down the water. From the research that we've done in, um, in my lab and with our collaborators, we see that there are differences in serotypes, that's different serotypes that survive in water. Um, and so do we see those differences when it comes to transmission um, in water? We don't know. Those are, those are questions that are all ready to be answered, hopefully. <laughs> So, uh, Nikki, um, do you think that are we getting better about controlling foodborne salmonella or do we still have ways to go? And what, what is your prediction? It, will we be able to reduce the number of outbreaks over the next few years? That is the million dollar question. <laughs> um, we're certainly um, more adept and we have more tools that are at our capability for identifying the sources of outbreaks uh, much quicker than we ever were before. Um, but I also think that our ability to isolate foodborne pathogens is getting better, right? And so uh, we're also finding it in places that we might not have expected it before. So uh, we know that in addition to uh, slogging around in rivers, uh, you're doing a lot of other field work. So maybe you could tell us a bit about your current field work and research projects. Sure. So uh, I'm an assistant professor in pop health and I'm in the poultry diagnostic and research center here at UGA. Um, and so I would say that, you know, 80% of my research program is centered on understanding uh, salmonella dynamics in, um, in poultry. And so developing new diagnostic tools to be able to identify salmonella, um, understanding how salmonella is first introduced into a um, poultry complex. So how does it come into, how do the birds first get colonized? Um, so is it through the litter? Is it through rodents? What are the salmonellas that we find in the environment around a poultry house? And then understanding how salmonella persists through the lifetime of a breeder flock of birds and then onto the progeny at broilers and then understanding the salmonella dynamics uh, when we uh, use intervention control at the processing plant. So much of our work is, is in poultry. Uh, we do a little bit of uh, research. We have a, a couple of projects looking at um, salmonella in um, cattle. 
Um, and so in uh, feedlot cattle, how are the populations of salmonella in the cattle um, defined and how are they influenced by the uh, salmonella populations that are present in the soil and in the environment um, that those cattle are in? We're also working back to poultry. We're also trying to um, use our diagnostic tools to track salmonella populations through turkey production. So when you say salmonella dynamics, exactly what do you mean? Sure, sure. So when I say salmonella dynamics, I mean, um, what are the different serotypes? And is the relative abundance of those serotypes to each other? Does it stay static? Or does it change? Um, and what is what causes it to change? So for example, um, in the poultry industry, we vaccinate our birds against certain serotypes of salmonella. So when we do that vaccination, how does that change the serotypes that are then present and persist in the bird? Or when we're in processing and we use a certain chemical as an antimicrobial, what are the serotypes that um, can survive that? What, what, what does that do at the population level? versus for a single for a single strain or serotype of salmonella. Very interesting. So Nikki, um, after this uh, this really interesting chat and and after learning all about your re research, do you have any advice for our listeners at home? Sure, I can share with you two pieces of good advice. Uh, the most important one is to uh, cook your meat to a safe temperature. For a chicken, that's 165 degrees Fahrenheit and use a meat thermometer. Uh, and if you have backyard poultry, um, so there were, um, it was a large outbreak of salmonella last year in backyard poultry and there's a current outbreak this year in backyard poultry. Um, so practice uh, hand washing, don't get up close and cuddle and kiss those chickens. Um, and uh, people do. <laughs> um, it, it, it is so hard, especially when they are small, the, the baby chickens. I but actually safe thing to do. <laughs> we'll put up the link um, on the web page, but I saw an article that was titled something like, don't kiss your chickens. Yes. So... <laughs> <laughs> Don't kiss your chickens, to put it bluntly. <laughs> okay, great. Nikki, thank you so much for this. This was really interesting. And our, once again, our guest today has been Dr. Nikki Sherriot from the Department of Population Health at UGA's College of Veterinary Me Medicine. Nikki, thank you so much for being with us today. This was really, really interesting. Thank you so much, Liliana. And thank you, David. I had a lot of fun. Thank you. So links to additional information about Dr. Sherriot's research can be found on our website at fid.uga.edu slash PPP. Thank you for tuning in today. If you have any questions or suggestions for future episodes, reach out to us at our email at ppp.uga.edu. This podcast is brought to you by the Faculty of Infectious Diseases and the Grady College of Journalism at the University of Georgia. It is supported by the University of Georgia through the Office of the Vice President for Research and the College of Veterinary Medicine. Science.